Yeah, absolutely. We need to rethink love and commitment. You know, 60 years ago uh, was when we decided that men had to be monogamous too. Men were not monogamous for all of recorded human history. Uh, what about the polygamists? Some of their groups have already said that after same-sex marriage is approved, they want polygamy approved. What's going on? And I want a non-gay explanation. <laughs> What's the big brewer? <laughs> so, who's going to say no and based on what? You want answers? I want the truth! Welcome to the beautiful campus of LCMSU, everyone. Who are you? I am the Chancellor. Yeah, baby! <laughs> Master Marcus Zill. joined here today in the student union from way up north pastor david kind pastor kind serves as the campus pastor at university lutheran chapel serving students at the university of minnesota how are you doing today dave yeah i'm good thank you pastor zill it's great oh, to be here oh it's fantastic uh, second time back last time we had you on i think we talked about aramus and uh and prayer life um devotional prayer life and today we wanted to have you on to talk about what is apparently one of your favorite topics, polygamy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Who's, who's, who doesn't love this topic? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe your wife. <laughs> but uh, There are days, Marcus. Yes. There are days. <laughs> no, but uh, no. Uh, going back uh, a couple of years, this is kind of an interesting backstory. Um, uh, this new book is out from CPH, uh, From Taboo to Delight, Ethics of Sex. I don't know. Does anybody out there remember uh, where the word taboo came back in vogue in the Synod? Uh, where was that, Dave? Oh, that would be at your conference. Yeah, well, at our conference, <laughs> at the LCMSU That's conference right. in 2015. We tackled a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, sexuality and marriage issues and dating and whatnot uh, at the taboo conference and and discuss the things that we haven't been talking about. And uh, as I look through this book, it's a fantastic book, um, available at CPH with Gifford Grobing as the general editor. But I, th I think four or five out of the ten articles uh, kind of kind of came out of that conference. And so it's um, it's a wonderful thing to think that uh, that our being a little cutting edge in campus ministry kind of puts some topics on the table. And apparently, we got polygamy on the table because. Uh, I don't know. You might be the first Lutheran pastor to uh, be in print talking about polygamy. <laughs> well, it's a dubious honor, so, but uh, uh, I was happy to do it. The father of polygamy. <laughs> With oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what's interesting is we were putting together a sectional list for that conference. And you and I don't know if you remember this, but we were talking about it. And I was like, well, Dave, you got to do a sectional. Like, well, what are other people doing? I went through the list of other things, and you go, well, nobody's really talking. I get, I could do something on polygamy in the Old Testament and what it has to do with it. I'm like, okay. Next thing you know, now you are the godfather of this topic, and you're talking <laughs> about it on the radio. So, well, it's you know, it's kind of funny as a campus pastor, you get thrown these topics by students all the time, or they come up in a Bible study, and all of a sudden, sure. you know, you have to know your stuff. So, 
you study it just like a student would writing a paper. Does this topic you know? really come up on campus these days? It, you know, it's it's not that much of a campus topic, although we do have the Mormons down the street, just like two blocks away from us. There you go. And everybody gets talked to by the Mormons. So, sure. uh, you know, so they are interested in, you know, why don't why do we think that's wrong? And and uh, it actually came up for me in a Genesis Bible study uh, with, uh, you know, the origins of polygamy and such. And, and then you do marriage counseling and things like that. And it's surprising how often people have questions about it. Well, and of course, with uh, where, I mean, set the stage a little bit. How is this? I mean, we might be a little ahead of the curve talking about it, but all the experts uh, uh, seem to think that, uh, that, that, you know, at the rate that we're going with transgender issues and this, that, and the other thing, uh, this is one of those things that's looming on the horizon, is it not? Well, it is, and it's it's interesting because with uh, you know there was a big push for homosexual marriage a few years ago, which unfortunately became the law of the land. And one of the arguments for it uh, was actually related to polygamy and the fact that you know even even Christians would say biblically speaking, it's not always one man one woman, and they'd use that as a defense for for gay marriage. Sure. So uh, it, you know it is an important topic, and I think it's become more popularized in the media. We've got TV shows about polygamy that were popular, uh, maybe still are, you know, Sister Wives and and Big Love and that kind of stuff. Um, And uh, people are, you know, people are interested in the topic. Well, what uh, let's uh, let's kind of start back in the beginning. You said this kind of comes up a lot in Genesis. And uh, um, so what uh, what do we say? What do you say to your college students about uh, when you see? Uh, polygamists are, you know, in the Old Testament and multiple wives. I mean, how do you deal with that? Uh, what does God's word really say about this, and and what does it not say? You know, the, the real the real difficulty I think for people is that there is no clear prohibition against polygamy in the Old Testament. Nowhere does does the Lord come out and say, "I condemn this outright," and yet uh, yet you find it not at the beginning. It's not part of the order of creation. And you find it universally rejected by the New Testament church, um, such that you have statements uh, by Paul saying, if you want to be a pastor, uh, you know, a bishop or a deacon, uh, you have to be the husband of only one wife and not many. Um, So when you see those requirements there, they're requirements that, yeah, they're specific to, to this office that pastors have, but they're also requirements that are reflective of, of what the Christian life is supposed to look like because the pastors are supposed to image that life for their people. So the question of polygamy, you know, why is it banned in the New Testament for, for pastors especially, but in general? And and why do we see it so prominent in the Old Testament? It's a huge question. So I came to this topic really, like I said, through this Genesis Bible study. And when you when you look at the issue of marriage in Genesis and then in relation to the rest of the scriptures, Um, it always goes back to what was done in the beginning. So Jesus, when he's answering the question uh, of divorce, for instance, with the Pharisees, they say, can a man divorce his wife for just any reason? And his answer is, you know, even though Moses let you do this in the beginning, it was not so. And he points them back to the order of creation and really the marriage of Adam and Eve. So I think when we look at polygamy, we need to do the same thing. What has God established versus what have we done with it? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. You know, that's one of the beautiful things with the uh, with the marriage rate. 
um, the, the really all three main scripture texts that we use from Genesis, and then in terms of when Jesus brings it up, as well as in Ephesians, all of it, basically, it's like the one place in the scripture in the lectionary where you see the very best, where you see all, all of everybody, you see, an, you see the apostle, you see our Lord himself, all going back to, to what marriage was supposed to be uh, from the very dirt of creation. Yeah, um, and all so of them, all really of them, be quote emulating the what God wished marriage to be, not what it's kind of denigrated into in a lot of fronts. That's right, and it, so it all revolves around the two shall become one flesh. Right, uh, and that's that's a man and a woman whom God puts together. You know what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Is the is the as uh, uh, Jesus says, and then is also the liturgy reflects that that statement. So, who were some of the big? Uh, the big polygamist uh, types in the Old Testament. Where where do we see this specifically? And uh, and you know uh, you know why you you mentioned that Moses you know that Jesus said well Moses allowed you to do this. It's like God suffered this. Uh, tell us more about that and who were some of these players. Yeah. Well, first let's talk about the God suffered this part because sure. there is a little bit of legislation in Genesis about polygamy just a little bit in the mosaic legislation okay. uh, and it's, but nowhere is it, is it in the sense of promoting it? It's always in the sense of sort of mitigating the negative effects of it. So for instance, a man can't marry his wife's sister at the same time that he's married to his wife. Um, and then there's laws about, you know, if you, if uh, like, like if somebody dies, uh, do the children of the polygamous marriage have rights to the inheritance? And so it's basically trying to mitigate the negative effects and the confusion that polygamy calls for. But nowhere does it say you should do this. And that's important, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But in terms of uh, in terms of big characters, I mean, everybody likes to look at David and Solomon. And frankly, they were huge polygamists. Uh, But I like to go back to where does it start? And the first time we see polygamy is in. the the genealogy of Cain in the Old Testament before the flood. And so you have this genealogy, right? Cain is exiled from the Garden of Eden for killing his brother. He basically leaves in unbelief, saying he's been cast out from the presence of God, uh, and he's afraid that God's going to kill him, right? And God says, no, I'm not going to kill you. In fact, if anybody kills you, I put a mark on you, and I'll take vengeance on them sevenfold. And then you have this line of names from Cain that runs down until you get to a guy named Lamech. And with Lamech, there's a little bit of a description. And what most people remember Lamech for is he repeats that curse Mm. that God had given to Cain, except he he amplifies it. He says, well, if if somebody was going to hurt Cain and God took vengeance on them sevenfold, if somebody hurts me, I'll take vengeance on them seventyfold. And basically, it's uh, he's taking matters into his own hand. Now, Lamech had a, had a son, actually three sons, all of whom were famous for something. Well, one of them was famous for being a blacksmith. Hmm. Uh, he's called the father of everybody who works in in the metals. And the, the idea here is that Sol- there's, there's the first piece of poetry in the Old Testament comes from Lamech. It's called his sword song. And it's it's basically he's talking to his two wives, and this is why we know he's a polygamist. It says he told his wives this, um, and he said, "I've killed a man, uh, and if anybody comes after me, I'll take vengeance on them. Let vengeance be upon them seventy times seven. And a lot of scholars think he hadn't hadn't actually killed anybody at that point, but that he's got this new sword that his son has made. Mm. 
And he looks at this thing and he says, now I have power. Now I can take matters into my own hand. No one can stand against me because I've got the best weapons. I can kill people. And if they try to come after me, I'll just, I'll just kick their butts. I'll mm. take vengeance 70 times on them. You know, I don't need God. I've got a sword. So the reason this account is in Genesis, I would argue, and many scholars agree with me on this, is that it shows that sort of the culmination of man's unbelief with this character Lamech, who has forsaken the way God ordered the world. Uh, he's taken multiple wives. He believes that, that he stands in the place of God to execute vengeance. Um, he's just a man with who's basically portrayed as being completely without faith, completely in rebellion. And then that's the last person. He and his sons are the last people that are listed in the line of Cain, even though there, there had to have been several generations after that before the flood, because it says his sons are the father of this, the father of that, the father of whatever, uh, which means there's people after them that learned from them and carried this trade on into sure. the future. Okay. So when we see that polygamy comes from Lamech, immediately red flags should go up saying this just isn't kosher. This is part and parcel of unbelief uh, that, that the guy who's, who's seen about his power, you know, and his, his lack of need for God is also the guy that takes two wives hmm. basically because, because of lust. One of them, you know, their names show this. One of their names is, is uh, trying to remember this off the top of my head, but it's like beautiful or something like that. And, and I don't remember what the other one was. Um, but, but they indicate that, that there's a, you know, what his motives are for taking these wives. Hmm. Now, is it always, <clears throat> does it appear to always have been motives, I mean, of lust? Or uh, you know, were, there, were there things at play with having multiple wives in the Old Testament eras? Um, you know, alliances between tribes or, I mean, oh, yeah. some of that going on too? Oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's many different motivations for it. Sometimes it's political. Sometimes it's power, uh, you know, the quest for power. Um, sometimes it's just, you know, a guy's horny and he wants more women. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, and he has the power and the ability to do it usually. Sure. Now, in a, you know, when it first comes into the, to the patriarchal line, the line of the faithful, it sort of comes in um, in a in a weird piety. Um, it's with Abraham, and we normally don't think of Abraham as a polygamist, but when you look at his life, um, he has he has children with more than one woman while he's married to his first wife. So Sarah's his wife, and if you recall, God gives the promise to Abraham that he'll have a child from his own flesh. Well, Sarah's barren her whole life. They're, they're like in, they're, you know, they're octogenarians at this point or something like that. They're old. And she says, well, clearly this is not going to happen through me. So she gives Abraham her handmaiden and says, here, you lie with her and have a child with her. And Abraham's like, well, okay. <laughs> you know. If you say so, honey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I'll do anything to please you, dear. <laughs> and it kind of has so. this bias veneer of, well, of course, you know, we, uh, you know, we frown on this kind of thing when it had to do with like, you know, kings of England doing this kind of thing. But here right. you have, you know, Father Abraham, all the little kids songs that we sing. And here he was practicing this, too. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like I said, it's got this pious veneer because they thought they were 
they were enabling God to fulfill what he had promised. As opposed okay. to letting God fulfill what he promised for us. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we're going to take matters into our own hands. Here, you take Hagar, get it on with her, have a child. And he does. And it just causes, like, innumerable problems that, you know, really filter down to our very day. So the, it's, the Arabs trace their, their ancestry it's, from it's Ishmael. Old, yeah, okay. You know? Sure. And Islam is based upon the whole idea, in part, that Ishmael was really the, the chosen child, um, and, and Isaac was the illegitimate one. Uh, so you have, you know, you can you can almost trace the whole battle between Jews and 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 Arabs to, to Abraham taking the second wife. Um, so, so God God allowed this. He did not. Um, he did not. Uh, nowhere do we find in Scripture where God says, uh, "Go, you know, please do this. This is what I want you to do. This is not God pleasing, but God allowed this and suffered it." Um, now, what does Jesus? Yeah. Well, and if we, when you when you think, if I get before we get to Jesus, we talk a little bit more about Abraham. Okay. When you think about the way the New Testament talks about those sons, sure, and the distinction between the one born free and the one born to the bond servant. And Paul says, let the bondservant be cast out. Hmm. Um, you know, you can take that as a repudiation of what Abraham did there. That, of course, now Paul is using it Christologically to say we're free in Christ. Uh, let those who are children of the law be cast out because they're rejecting Christ, what have you. Um, and they'll battle against us, all that. He's using it very typologically. But if you look at the event itself, the fact that that Abraham casts out uh, Hagar and Ishmael um, says something about what polygamy does to a family and that this was not a God-pleasing thing at all. Right. And then the the next polygamist you get. Oh, go ahead. Are there parallels, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, God's people in the Old Testament started dreaming of, oh, we wish we had judges, we wish we had, you know, we want uh, kings. We want ju- you know. We is it kind of like God? God, well, if that's what if that's where you know I'm going to allow this, not because I want to see this happen, not because it's a part, but it's because that's society. Um, sometimes God gives you what you want, um, not necessarily as a blessing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right, and God still works that way. It's interesting uh, when I teach people about prayer. I always say, you know, be careful what you pray for, because God just might give it to you. And if, <laughs> yeah, you know, you got you to remember every time you pray that petition, thy will be done. But yeah. uh, so let's get to Jesus. Um, what? So what what does Jesus have to say about all this? And how does this the posture <laughs> uh, change when we get to the New Testament? Well, first of all, Jesus is no polygamist. I think that's that's the most important statement we can make. Jesus has one bride, which is the church. There you go. He doesn't, he doesn't have multiple brides. Um, she is the body. He is the head. He is the bridegroom. She is the bride. And uh, so, you know, when we look at what marriage is, if marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, where does polygamy fit? It just, it just doesn't. Um, 
you know, even even when we look at at the gospel going out to different cultures and peoples, this was in the gospel for Sunday, by the way. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this flock. Well, what does he have, two flocks? Hmm. Is he a polygamist? No, he says, I will bring them in and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Hmm. There's one bride, you know, not multiple brides. Uh, so polygamy just is not part of what marriage is intended to be. Because Paul tells us very clearly, marriage is about Christ and the church. And actually, the, the marriage of Christ and the church is the primary marriage, and all the other ones are just pictures that point to it. You know, they're, they're real in the sense that they're real marriages, but the reason God instituted it is to point us to Christ and the church. Well, you know, and it seems to me, Dave, that as, uh, <clears throat> as all these marriage issues and, and uh, homosexual marriage and it seems like it's opened up this, these floodgates of, well, if you can say that, that a man and a man or a woman and a woman can be married, why can't you say, why can't you say two men and three women, or why can't you marry, what if I want to marry a fig? What if I want to yeah, marry right. a, you know, a horse, I mean, a tree? You know, at some point, um, in a way, we can look at this very negatively, and it's certainly depressing when you think about it. But with what you just said about the relationship of Christ and his bride, the church, don't we maybe as Christians have like one heck of an opportunity going forward to really see what Paul is talking about Ephesians and what Jesus is expressing all the more fuller in terms of the witness that our marriages can be to point people back to Christ and his church? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think that the whole fight for marriage is not simply a fight for morality. It's, it's a confession of faith. That look, we believe something about this institution that God has made, and it's the reason that we don't think that we can just do whatever we want with it is because we understand what it means, and if we do whatever we want with it, somehow, and to relative degrees, mind you, we are we are destroying that image. So I would argue, you know, when you look at the broad spectrum of sexual sins revolving around marriage, polygamy is probably one of the lesser ones. Um, it's it's not quite as far of a step away from what God has instituted as, say, homosexual marriages or interspecial marriage or something like that. But it's still a step away. And, uh, you know, we want to maintain the thing that God has actually given we are because of why he's given it. We're talking with Pastor David Kind about polygamy and what does the Bible really say about it. We've got just a just a couple of minutes here left, uh, Pastor Kine. What uh, So when we get this back into the context of college students, uh, this maybe is in full force on our college campuses yet, uh, but we see signs that it's coming. So uh, w when one of our students gets into a, an argument with somebody over, you know, you know, what marriage is and what it maybe has to do with uh, polygamy or these our polyamorous uh, relationship, what, what kind of tips would you give our college students of how to deal with this when they throw it in their face and say, well, in the Old Testament, how would you uh, encourage our, our young people to respond to uh, kind of attacks like that? I think when you, when you, when you deal with that, you've got to remember, first of all, that not everything that's recorded in the Old Testament has a moral judgment placed on it. So when you're reading the history books of the Old Testament, it just tells you what happened. Sure. You've got to go somewhere else to find out most of the time whether it's right or wrong. And uh, so you go to the prophets or you go to the New Testament, and, and that gives us, or the law of Moses even, you know, the Ten Commandments. And that gives us the, the, the vision, 
if you will, like the clear vision to see what do these things mean that happened in the Old Testament. Because, you know, like you got that weird incident where the guy has a, a concubine and he chops her up and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a horrible thing. Yeah. And yet it doesn't say, and God cursed him for doing this, and he was sent to hell or something like that, or the earth opened up his mouth and swallowed him. It just says it happened. Well, does that mean that that's good? Of course not. Of course it doesn't. Uh, because we can, we can, not just because we think it's bad, but because we can bring in other clear biblical texts that deal with the morality of the situation and say, this is what he did wrong. Okay, this was sinful. Well, we have to treat polygamy the same way. It comes up only really in these in these uh, historical texts where it just says this is what happened you know david took this one as a wife and then he took that one as a wife and nowhere does it say this is a good thing or a bad thing to know that we've got to go to other texts so so what i tell my students to do is first of all you gotta you gotta say look not everything you read in the bible has a moral judgment attached to it you gotta you gotta make those from other texts and we also need to be uh resilient to focus on what we do know about marriage and what God says about it rather than only focusing on on the gray areas where we wish he had said more. Exactly. Exactly. So we always go back to, you know, theologians talk about sedes doctrinae, the seats of doctrine. Um, what this means is there are passages that are very clear that tell us what things are. Marriage, for instance. We return to those texts and we say, look, these texts are clear. They describe what marriage is. This thing that we're talking about, it doesn't fit with what those texts are saying. Um, so where did it go wrong? Well, Pastor Kind, we appreciate you being with us today. That's all we have time. Uh, the doors are closing on the Student Union. Thanks for joining all us right. today. Delightful to be here. Thanks, Marcus. Well, that's all we have time for here today in the Student Union. Join us again here on the Student Union, the beautiful campus of LCMSU. College is tough. You need Jesus, we'll help.